Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Scott Sochnick. And I'm Evan Novi williams and you're listening to The Sportacast. That's that's it. No, the Sportacast. I mean, I know Rick listens to the show, and uh, that's all we got. There was nothing. An educational, the Hill, eighteen seventy, the Orange edition of something. <laughs> There's so many. You guys should be doing into, comedy, yeah. and it's this could be called the Aristocats or something like that. Ooh. There, oh, there we go. The real Rick B. Rick Burton, professor, Syracuse University, my alma mater. Just in case I say something that's overly flattering, at least that's out there. Wait, by the way, Rick. And, and I, I, boy, we did not discuss this, but let me ask you. I had a couple of friends drop their kids off for their freshman year at Syracuse, right? Drop off was earlier this week or last was. week. Was yep. okay. And I did ask one of them. So what's a uh, what's a year go for at Syracuse these days? Now was he lying to me because he told me seventy two thousand dollars? Is that accurate? Uh, I would have said 70, but I think when you throw in all the bells and whistles, it's probably that. And it's that way at Stanford and in the Ivies and, you know, and probably at Duke and Northwestern. So um, I think that's what a, a private school education is these days. I would love nothing more than to hold my piece of paper up high along the Ivies and Duke and Stanford. You know, the Newhouse School of Public Communication certainly has a, a great reputation and there's like the Syracuse Mafia out there in the media. But holy bejesus, like <laughs> my kid's 12 years old. I'm scared as you know what right now. Yeah, it's uh, it's cold out there, kids. So uh, you know, dress warmly. It's, two two uh, words, Scott: hockey scholarship. Oh, yeah. see, I don't want to put that kind of pressure on the lad, you know. And by the way, as you know, if if he does go that route and he's good enough, I would sort of. I mean, he really loves, as, as many kids do. They see TV. They love Ohio State. They love Penn State. They love Michigan. Great hockey schools, by the way. All good. But I would still, if I could. I'd go look at the the Yale, the Harvard. I would say Princeton, except I have some really uh, personal relationships with some people who went to Princeton, and it's not all that impressive. Maybe my co-host of this show. Yeah, who are those people? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if this is where it gets you, really, why would I do that? And yet we digress. Rick, tell me, where are we in college sports? I I, I mean, we we've seen the change, and I thought we were done with the with the teams moving and, and the realignment. And now all of a sudden there's this epic shakeup of Texas and Oklahoma going to the SEC. I've got the Big Ten, the ACC, and the Pac-12 saying we need to do something in response. So we're going to have an agreement that right now really doesn't amount to a whole lot. But you know, be warned, we're wagging our fingers. 
Where are we? What is going on in college sports? Well, I think these consolidations or these reconfigurations take place fairly regularly. I mean, I think there would have been a time, you know, 30 years ago where the landscape looked completely different and and teams were in the Big East. And, you know, if you go back and you look at Miami, Virginia Tech, Syracuse, West Virginia, uh, they were all in the Big East. Uh, and then suddenly they were in the ACC and the Big 12. And, and this kind of thing goes on. I don't think that it's the end of the world, as, as a lot of people want to believe, but it is reflective of change. And I think you got to look at the Austin case that came down through the Supreme Court. Uh, you've got to look at the transfer portal. you got to look at NIL. And you have to say this is an epoch. Is that the right word? An epoch? Uh, E-P-O-C-H. This is an era for which I think we'll look back and we'll point to and we'll say, wow, an awful lot of stuff went down in a really short period of time. Now, if I'm looking forward, though, is it fair to say that this may be the end of the NCAA as we know it? Perhaps it'll have some sort of significant form, but it just seems to me that because the media and the money that comes with it is so important that we're moving toward a place where the conferences that really stand out and have those those teams that draw eyeballs the most are in a, an incredibly powerful situation. Yeah, both yes and no. I mean, right, I, I want it both ways. It's uh, the old Miller Lite commercials where, you know, Billy Martin would say, I, I, I feel strongly about, you know, both sides. Uh, listen, I can find you people who will say it's the end of the NCAA as we know it. But they said that about free agency in baseball in the 1970s, that it would kill baseball. It didn't. I think I can find you people who will say the NCAA is going to be different. But for the moment, the basketball tournament is still under contract to, what, CBS? And and I think it's still going to spit off a billion dollars to the NCAA. And they're going to share those funds across member institutions, schools. And people are going to still care about who's going to the Final Four and March Madness um, I think the bowl football thing is interesting, whether we're talking about four teams or eight or 12. I, I can get my hands up in the air and start getting all animated. But I think that it's going to change. And are we talking about the frog in the frying pan? It's going to change in small increments until you don't realize that the frog can't jump out of the pan. Or is what you're saying is it's going to happen immediately. Yeah, g- give me a second here, Eben, because Rick doesn't know that we sometimes use these video clips as promotion on social before the podcast. So would you please, Rick, would you please just kind of flail your arms <laughs> in, in a wild way? There, I think that's, sh- give, me, give me sort of the visualization of where we stand in college sports right now. <laughs> oh, there, so it's Munch the Scream, right? Is that where we are? That, right? Yeah. Okay. All right, Eben, go take it away. But I think we can use that one on promo. I was going to ask, we've talked a lot, and Rick, I think I've talked to you about it also, the the movement for athletes to gain more rights obviously gained a, a massive step in the past few months with name, image, and likeness. Uh, there are a lot of people out there who advocate that this is just the, a stepping stone towards what is full rights for athletes. I'm curious if you think that the granting marketing rights to athletes in any way potentially hinders the, the broader conversation around athlete rights and the idea that 
that that that some people may think, oh, we we've done the thing now. We've given athletes their marketing rights. Now we don't even need to talk about kind of a free open economy of, of athletes in the way that we see in in pro sports. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that I'm qualified to answer the question, but I think everything slides along a continuum. And and I sometimes mention uh, I'm you know I'm a, I'm offended by pornography, but I mention sometimes that w- what was considered pornographic in the 1950s is now considered PG on you know national television. Uh, that you know Lucy and Desi weren't allowed to be shown sleeping in the same bed on I Love Lucy, and and today what you can find on any number of cable or you know mainstream channels is something that you know, 50 years ago, 70 years ago would have been highly offensive. I think that the way we see things today are part of a shifting continuum that cause us to say, are we there yet, right? It's kind of like, you know, going on a family vacation. Um, I just watched a little bit of the uh, Little League World Series, and and there were a couple of young ladies who were doing really well, a kid who threw a no-hitter, a team from Michigan that won the world, I think it was Michigan, that won the... uh, that won the World Series, um, should those student-athletes, should those kids have rights? And, and, and I don't expect you or I to have the answer to the question, but I think that it is part of how we try to understand where we are moving to. I'm sure that ESPN certainly cut a check to Little League for the right to show those ball games. So it is a question worth asking. And and, and it makes me wonder, (laughs) by the way, what would have been that quote had Justice Potter had Showtime or HBO? (laughs) When we're talking about, yeah, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Yeah, Yeah. I think Game of Thrones, he would have said his hands thrown in the air. Yeah, I see it. I got it. And I wonder if that's the same of college athletics right now. Yeah. Now, I think, though, if we're going to talk about NIL rights, you know, there are a lot of student athletes out there that are not going to get NIL deals. And there are a lot of student athletes who are going to do an NIL deal for a T-shirt um, and or beer money or, you know, if, if they're, you know, of legal drinking age, you know, pizza money, um, which is that they may be very lucky to go back to their hometown and do a clinic. I, I think there's a huge difference, Evan, between talking about, you know, what would Zion Williamson be making with NIL? And, and he is the outlier. He is the, you know, one of. 20 people that may make significant NIL money for whom the media discussion is you've got to do right by Zion Williamson. But the third string offensive tackle who no one even recognizes on campus um, is suddenly being told by their friends and their family, you've got to start making money. Um, And that kid is there to get an education. That kid does not believe he's going to the NFL uh, or she's on the lacrosse team, and this is the last time that she's going to be playing competitively. And I just wrote about this for Sportico, and I think it's going to run on Thursday. And, and it's a topic that is, you know, are, are we there yet? And, and the answer is no, but not everyone's going to share in the results equally. Yeah, I think that's kind of the, the question I was asking is that NIL rights, as you said, are going to be 
you know, very little dollars of any dollars for a lot of people that play sports collegiately. Um, but there is a movement to grant those people a lot more rights. I'll pick a, a single area, medical coverage, right? A, a more robust medical coverage would mean a lot more to the third string left tackle at Texas A&M than being able to cut a deal for whatever the value is with a local sushi restaurant or a local car dealership. Um, and that's been, that, that's one of the things I'm looking forward to kind of seeing is how the conversation around those broader rights, if it changes changes it all now that we have granted some rights to some athletes. Well, we did just see that decision in Pennsylvania that sort of w- did not allow a case to be tossed declaring uh, athletes employees. Yeah. And, and, and I think that one of the things you have to ask is whether or not universities will start saying, well, OK, you're a professional athlete. I'm going to now take back the scholarship um, for you to come to my school because you're going to be able to earn all these other side benefits um, from playing in college. Um, one of the questions I find really interesting is how many schools are really going to be able to keep up? Um, and among the three of us, you know, we might talk about this coming college football season. There's Alabama and there's Ohio State and Oklahoma will be in the mix. But how many schools can actually keep up with um, the granting of NIL rights or the, the provision of, of benefits um, to remain, to keep the team competitive. And I, I hope this is not going to ultimately lead to um, schools not offering scholarships and therefore a lot of people losing out on what the agenda always was, the promise that if you come to my school, I'll see to it that you get a college degree which has the potential to change generational wealth or that the schools start to say, well, you've made yourself into a professional athlete. You don't need me to give you a scholarship. You can pay your way here. We are chatting with Rick Burton, professor at the Falk School at Syracuse University. And I was always struck, Rick, by the fact that people on the education side would always say to me, why are we even talking about this? the number of athletes that are truly affected by sort of one and done and going pro, it's almost infinitesimal when looked at the student body at large and even just the body of athletes at these major universities. Why are we spending so much time talking about it? And did the NCAA then perhaps err in fighting it for so long? Like, here we are. It's happening. I haven't seen the world end. You know, Scott, I... I, (laughs) The first thought that comes into my mind is why did the NFL fight the two-point conversion for so long? I think that we we live in a land of traditions that help shape us, and and I'm being philosophical here with you know no ground to stand on, but we are we're certain that the way we have been was right until someone says, well, you ought to think about doing it differently, and then a lot of times we adapt and change and. And listen, let's talk baseball. I think the last major development in baseball was the designated hitter rule uh, or starting a runner on second I would say the wild card. The The wild card and then studying the the, the extra inning rules. I'm going to give my favorite Mike Bloomberg quote. You know, I I was with Mike and his company for a, a number of years. And Mike would always say, the worst reason to do something is because that's the way it's always been done. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Think it's OK. You can try new things. You're not going to fail. What you do is learn. I think that's an Edison quote. You don't fail. You learn. You either get it yeah. right or you learn. But I think that a lot of people and maybe it includes the three of us. We stick to the familiar, the conservative, the thing that doesn't get us in trouble. We don't want to venture out into the new playground. 
until one day we get pushed there. And, and then at that point, we start to go, okay, this is a whole new landscape. Now let's see what this means. I think I, I love talking about the NFL because I think that they've been fairly shrewd in a lot of ways. When there were too many field goals being kicked, they moved the goalposts in tighter, right? When the wide receivers couldn't get off the line, they actually created space so that the defensive back couldn't come up and chuck the, the receiver at the line. They put halos around the quarterback. And the game has continued and maybe in a lot of people's minds gotten more dynamic. The NCAA is in part responsible for college sports, and they're having to figure out, and, and it comes difficult, uh, it comes as a difficult process, how to do that for the benefit of all the association members. Does one size fit all? I'm sorry, maybe it's difficult. Like one size just can, uh, Division Three can't be Division Two, can't be Division One. They're set, they're different animals. I don't think anyone can argue with you on that. And that's exactly uh, why we're getting the changes that we're getting. This is why Mark Emmert has said, I want conferences to play a bigger role in governance and rulemaking is because the, the rules can't apply to Alabama and Alabama State the same way. Rick, I actually want to go back to, to, to what you were saying there about kind of embracing change. I have a few times on this podcast actually kind of compared NIL to sports betting in that sports betting was something that all these major leagues fought for so long and, you know, they waited until it was essentially shoved down their throat by the Supreme Court and then they about-faced and, and everybody's embracing it. I think the difference, the more I think about that analogy, is that the NFL, we now know where all those leagues are on sports betting. They're for it. They're signing all these deals. They have run yeah. 180 degrees the other direction. They're, they're doing everything possible to capitalize on it. The NCAA has not done a 180-degree about-face. They have, like, kind of turned the boat a little bit and are now kind of listing in the wind. The, the thing I find so confusing about this is it's not like the NCAA has, has chosen a different tact and is choosing to embrace it. They are kind of still straddling the middle ground where they don't seem to be really giving NIL guidance. They're deferring to everybody, including state legislatures and schools themselves, et cetera. Um, I think this could be a much more effective result for, for colleges in, in, as well if they had chosen, okay, NIL is now the thing and we're going to rush and embrace it as opposed to kind of leaving everyone to figure it out on their own. Yeah, and Evan, I think that if you were to ask a lot of athletic directors, I think they'd tell you that they're in favor of NIL. You know, they're in favor of giving the athletes a chance to do more. They had to live with the rules as they were written at the time, and they're new rules. And, and, you know, I think a lot of the best universities right now are really doing a lot to educate these student athletes and, and try and show them how to become entrepreneurs. Um, and I think that I have a quote that I was just about to use in class today, and, and it's, you know, what we need to teach to the leaders of tomorrow is different today than it was 40 years ago. And, and so maybe we're all a little bit more prepared to say, hey, you can be a business, and, and here's what being a business looks like. And maybe we can strike that up as being something positive as opposed to NIL as a negative. Eric, if we take a peek at your resume, I think it's important for people to know that you had a stint as the commissioner of the Australian Basketball League. You were the CMO of the United States Olympic Committee. So you've worn many hats. And uh, when we're talking about sports betting, and Eben knows where I'm going to go with this, and I know this is a man that you have had many conversations with, but I like to uh, invoke David Stern. And he told me years and years and years ago that there was no sort of moral objection to sports betting. It really wasn't about anything like that. He looked at me and said, Scott, when there's enough money for us to do it, that's when we'll do it. 
I mean, is that really the driver? I'm sure you can appreciate it as a former commissioner of a league and also as a CMO. When the money is there, the motivation will be there as well. Yeah, Sasha, you know, I was lucky enough to have David as a rabbi. And, and, and you know, yeah, of course. And he was always right. I mean, he was, <laughs> he would laugh. He's laughing right now if he's watching me. Um, it is about the money and it is about the owners or the stakeholders. And, and in David's case, and, and Adams now, he's serving 30 or 32, how many ever teams are in the NBA, he's serving 30 owners and their capitalistic interests. But he's also serving the fans and the players. And it became clear to the leagues that this sport wagering was going to drive in a lot more money for everybody. And it was time to get on board. Now, it, this is the same kind of thing as we can't have any pro sports teams in Las Vegas until suddenly Las Vegas is a really great sports town. Um, and now every league will probably have a team there. I can't imagine that Oakland, which is, I think, on probably its fifth or sixth visit to, to Las Vegas, that the A's won't be the Las Vegas A's within two years. Yeah. And let me ask, but who wins this? Vegas gave the Raiders a $750 million public subsidy, the largest public su subsidy in pro sports history. On top of that, they have twice, and I know COVID is an anomaly, and who, like, who knew, but they have twice already had to tap the reserve fund to pay, make bond payments on that stadium. It's going to wind up costing you know, a billion and a half, $2 billion for taxpayers for that facility. Where do we stand? Is it worth it? Is it not worth it? I mean, are people really happy to go eight times a year and cheer on that football team at the expense of other things that government's supposed to do? I think you know the answer. And I yes, think that yes, they will. <laughs> yes, they will. <laughs> yes, they will. <laughs> Some of them yeah. will, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and and therein lies an interesting part of this discussion, which is um the NFL knows that. Yeah. And the city fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers know that. And there is a sense that the NFL is good for our town and and better than a lot of maybe social services that could have been considered or should have been considered. Um, but the prevailing wisdom is adding a hockey team and a football team has transformed Las Vegas back into one of the world's most exciting sports cities. At the risk of, of bouncing around too much here, Rick, I do want to talk about the Olympics a little bit. We are, as we record, about five months away from the start of the of the Winter Games in Beijing. There has not been a lot of guidance on whether foreign fans are going to be allowed in at all. That, that is, I'm sure, a, a concern for a lot of the big companies that, that pay a lot of money to work with Team USA, for example, or, or the IOC. I'm curious, there was so much talk about the Tokyo Olympics, how challenging this was going to be for marketers. How do you advertise around a games that doesn't have fans, et cetera? Is the Beijing games adding kind of the geopolitical element to it? Is that a hard, is this going to be a harder Olympics for the, the sponsors, the, the, the companies that pay billions of dollars than the Tokyo games were just five months prior? Yeah, it, listen, there's a, there's a bunch of pieces. The winter games have always been smaller than the summer games. So you've got size You've got the second straight Olympiad in Asia. Uh, you've got a, a, a pandemic that is still raising its ugly head. A and then you have uh, China, which is a variable, which is we don't know yet how they're going to view letting in the world. Um, when in some people's minds, uh, 
the pandemic, you know, had maybe Asian origins. Um, it's, it's a real challenge. So you got a lot of variables going on there, but I think the short answer is this is going to be tough for the sponsors. Uh, and something that I think that they're going to be pushing back on the IOC and asking, I think, for make goods, mm. possibly in Paris and Los Angeles in 24 and 28. Do you, is, the, is the solution here to just try to focus your all of your marketing efforts on the athletes themselves, kind of try to avoid all of the kind of the pomp and circumstance around the Olympics that will be there all the time and just try to just celebrate the athletes as they hit the slopes or, or on the ice? No, it's the IOC's job to make sure that the, you know, the, the games remain the sacred thing that in a lot of people's minds they've always been. Uh, you've got to have, um, you know, the IOC's chief marketing officer and, and the USOPC's chief marketing officer working to make sure that, that the games are celebrated uh, and that the national governing bodies and the international federations and the athletes, uh, because if you start to lose pieces um, I think a lot more is at risk. Well, it feels like just yesterday. When was the when were the last Beijing Games? Give me the year, Rick. Because oh eight, oh eight. Oh my lord! I mean, it really feels like yesterday, where I was walking across to the uh, to the what what, what are the ice cube to see uh, the, the water snatched. cube. Sorry, the water cube <laughs> to see Michael Phelps swim early in the morning, and then going to the track at the Bird Nest Stadium to uh, to see Usain Bolt run at night. But oh eight, man. I mean, that, that really puts in perspective. I mean, it really does feel like yesterday, but the lessons are there. You have a big star, you accommodate the U.S. audience in prime time. So, I mean, in that realm, nothing really has changed. It's the U.S. television audience that runs these games and why they had to go on in Tokyo. But back to Eben's question, I mean, part of what made the Tokyo games hard is the time zone difference. And we're going to see that again with Beijing. And so... You've got new platforms now. You've got a new generation of people consuming media differently than they ever have before. I think I think it's safe to say that you know people between the ages of let's say fifteen and thirty five are much more platform centric. Um, it, it's going to be tough out there to make sure that the sponsors get their money's worth. All right, we'll end it there. He is Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on the Twitter at Soshnick. Do it up, real Rick B. Tell the people where they can reach you. You can find me on Twitter at RealRickB, but I'm not very busy on it, so uh, you won't find much from me. Oh, was that like a rhyme? Did you like drop a rhyme? <laughs> Real Rick B, not from me. Well, well, well done. But And the show, by the way, our social media editor, Cor Veltman, loves me to remind everybody that the show is at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will soon, emphasis on soon, become the hub of the Sportico Podcast Network.